Now, good morning, everybody. How are y'all today? Okay? Hanging in there? Good to be inside, not out in the smoke today, right? So it's good to see everybody. What, what I, I misunderstood, um, so I knew there was a lunch party today, and I thought Amy told me I had till noon uh, because that was when lunch was served. So, sorry. Hope you don't have plans today. No, but it's good to see everybody. Thanks for being here. If you're a guest today, let me welcome you as well. My name is Ryan, lead pastor here at Crossroads Church. We're in a series called Fresh Perspective, which is a doozy of a series for us. So if you're a guest today, you really got to put your thinking cap on uh, or just make a note to come back in about four weeks uh, when we launch our Campfire Story series, which is way more easy to understand. Um, But this series is really about equipping us as people of faith, to be able to answer the big questions like, what do we believe and why do we believe it? And, and when we talk about God and faith in Jesus and the gospel and these words, what do we mean here at Crossroads as peacemakers? And so that's what we've been exploring and walking through. And, and it's heavy. It's a lot. And uh, they're long sermons. And I wish I could tell you today was going to be different. I really do. But we're talking about sin and the cross today. How many of you have heard the word sin before? Uh, it was our fan favorite word, right? And the cross. Uh, people have been exploring these ideas for, I don't know, two, 3,000 years. So I should be able to knock it out here in about 30 minutes, right? No, no problem whatsoever. So I appreciate your, your grace. Um, and uh, we've, I, I think our topic today, uh, outside of the question of what is the Bible, how do we interact with it, uh, I think the topic today has been probably a close second to why people are leaving faith, uh, why people are walking away from the church, why when you look at all the statistics nationally in the Western church, in the Western hemisphere, why people are walking away. I think the way in which we talk about and some of the images that we've used to explain sin and the cross uh, have become real stumbling blocks for people of faith. So why not try and tackle it, right? I'm on a roll. (laughs) It's good, right? Let me ask you this question. How many of you have ever been through a circumstance in life and you're left with this big question and it sits right here, right here, right in the pit of your human existence? You feel it. You feel it physically. And the the question you're left with at the end of the experience is why? Have you all ever had one of those things happen in your life, right? When we're faced with a trauma, when we're faced with a tragedy, We struggle with the why questions. Why does this happen? There's something inside of us that is very, very averse to meaninglessness. We desire, we crave meaning. Suffering is one of those things. When we go through suffering, when we go through experiences that produce pain or heartache, go beyond what we can like rationalize as as part of an existence that's meant to be grounded in goodness, right? we're left with this question. And suffering is painful and it's powerful. And when it's detached of meaning, oftentimes it feels even more powerful. So we go through a loss of a friendship, a marriage ends, uh, a job, we lose our job. Uh, We're faced with the early death of someone we love. Death itself doesn't have to be an early death. A, A family member of ours, a parent, lives a long, full life. And at the end of 90, 100 years, we still feel the sting of death, and we're still asked with, how do, I, how do I function in a world that that person's no longer like physically a part of? There's something about our, our soul level of being, right, that spiritual side of us that craves meaning. 
And so the why question is powerful because it speaks to that idea of meaning, that part of us that is, is very central to existence and putting the pieces together of our lives. And so the why question is really related to the metaphysical and metaphorical questions of life, right? And what we're saying when we say why is not necessarily why did this happen, because we kind of know why certain things happen, right? We understand how disease works, right? We understand how relationships work. So we can know the why. What we're really saying is how could this happen? How could this happen? How, did, how could this happen to me? I did all the right things. I said all the right stuff. I've, I've sat with a lot of folks who have at times had, had long seasons away from a, an encounter or relationship with God because of this feeling. I was taught if I did this and this and this and this and this, and I went here and did this and I didn't do this, then I would have a good life. And look at what's happened. Look at the tragedy. Look at the trauma. And so that, that consumed reality of why does it all, why does it happen? Now, this question of why is not like a modern phenomenon. It's not like one day we woke up in the 21st century and we were like, huh, I think I'll start questioning the meaning of life and problems and suffering. Right? This is a part of like human existence. And this big why question is certainly what the earliest followers of Jesus were facing when they looked at their experience of the cross. Right? The very earliest followers of Jesus would have been handling and working through the trauma of watching this person who they loved, who they gave their life to, the, their teachings that they thought was going to rescue them from Roman occupation, and all of a sudden they see this beautiful person hanging on a cross, dying as a criminal. The trauma of that leaves them asking the very same questions we would be asking. Why? We've gone through national trauma, uh, many of us in our, in, throughout our lives, and we've seen figures that we thought would represent an ideal, would represent a future, and, and, and there's violence towards them and against them, and we're left, whole communities are left. How does this happen? Even the experience of the resurrected Jesus, right? The experience that the earliest followers of Jesus had with this Jesus is, is now a living reality beyond death. What do you do with that? <laughs> And so they're faced with the big question, like, why did Jesus die? How could this happen? And all of us, whether we're asking the question of why Jesus died in the first century or whether we're asking the question of pain we're going through right now, our worldview affects how we answer the why questions. Big word, worldview, right? Our worldview is the way in which we have an integrated experience, the way in which we explain not just how our lives work in our family, but how the world functions, how, say, the spiritual realities, the unseen realities of our world interact with the seen realities, right? A guy named Walter Wink wrote a book, uh, and, and this book it was called The Powers That Be, right? A Theology for a New Millennium. Who wrote this book maybe close to 20 years ago? And in it, he describes that there's basically five worldviews that we've seen all throughout human history, right? There's five worldviews that have held us, right? The first one is an ancient worldview, right? And the ancient worldview would be the worldview that our biblical writers functioned in and lived in, right? And this ancient worldview said that everything in heaven had a direct correlation with an earthly counterpart. So think of like two mirrors facing one another, right? And so the ancient worldview said whatever happens on earth is happening in heaven, right? And so the, the spatial metaphor was up, right? That's why in the Bible everybody's looking up, right? Lift up your eyes, lift up, look, right? So there was this layered reality. And if there was a war taking place on earth, then what must be happening was there was some sort of a war or a battle in this heavenly realm like the angels of the nations of the heavenly council were all arguing, right? So there was, a, there was this idea that, well, if there was a war on earth, then those, 
the angelic beings that correspond to those nations on earth are in some sort of a fight, right? And it was their symbolic way of saying that every material reality has a spiritual dimension and they mirror one another. And every kind of spiritual reality has a physical consequence, right? And so you, you wouldn't have any event, there'd be no entity in this world that didn't exist simultaneously in the invisible world, right? And so this was the view, the worldview, it was the only worldview of the biblical writers. And it wasn't just the biblical writers, I mean, the ancient Greeks, the Romans, the Egyptians, the Babylonians, Indians, Chinese, like it was there. This was the worldview. They all shared this, right? And it's interesting, a large number of people still share a similar worldview. Okay, now what emerges out of that worldview, and I'm not going to spend as much time on these because we've got to get through this message, right? But that's where we start, right? That's when we read Scripture, that's the worldview. What emerges is a spiritualistic worldview. Now, this comes about the second century, and it's a worldview that says, well, hold on a second. Like, they're not fully separated, but what happens is, like, heaven was occupied by this spiritual reality, and then there was the fall. And so, creation of the material world is seen as the fall. And so, spirit is good, matter is bad. And so, what you have happening is the world is kind of like, the world of the material is like a prison where spirits that have fallen go to right? And they're, they're no longer in the good heaven, but having become trapped in these bodies in this physical world, right? They're now subject to all of these ignorant powers that rule the world of matter. And so, the task of religion was to what? Was to rescue one's spirit from the flesh. I got to get out of this, right? I got to break free from these powers. And we see this emerging in kind of the second century with something called Gnosticism, and there were Gnostic Christians that emerged and it still is reflected in a lot of forms of Christianity that focus on what? On getting to heaven, like getting out of this body, getting away from what's called the veil of tears sometimes. If you ever sang that song, when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be, right? Which I have my own take on that little song. But at any rate, so that's kind of like the spiritualistic worldview that said, okay, here's what the world is. The world is a space where fallen spirits live and exist, and we're trying to get out of it. Now, in response to that worldview, what develops is what's called the materialistic worldview. Most of us know this because it's deeply influenced us. It kind of took hold in its height during the Enlightenment period, but we see it in as early as the fourth century, some fourth century writings. And it's kind of the antithesis of the, like, spiritualism that rejected the world. Now, like, materialism rejects the spiritual world, right? Materialism says there is no such thing as a soul. There is no God. There's no spiritual reality. All we have is, is matter and material things, right? And could you imagine what emerges out of that worldview? Is a theological worldview that says, okay, hold on a second. It's not just that matter. There, there is a difference, right? And so it's not a rejection of materialism, but what happens is, well, there's a spiritual world, but we could never know anything about it. It's just too far away for us. And so like, out of this like theological worldview, like there's all kinds of thoughts around like there's a supernatural realm, but we can't ever know it. We acknowledge that the higher realm exists, but really we can't scientifically study it or anything like that. So it's just kind of this privileged experience of a few spiritual or mystical people. Like during this era, like seminaries often taught, well, science tells us how the world was created, but religion tells us why the world was created. Sounds beautiful. Problem is, it creates this like bifurcated, divided, schizoid world, right? That there's this, there's, they're completely separate ideas. There's no relationship whatsoever between the two, right? And so we just lose all sense of unity of heaven and earth, right? It's just not a part of it. And then what's emerging now, what we see happening, say, over the last 7,500 years 
into where we are today is an integral worldview, right? This integrated worldview. And so this new worldview has emerged, right, from a number of different streams of thought, right? From certain religious thinkers, different types of theology, liberation theology, feminism, the, feminist theology. Uh, we see this in like the new physics that's looking at how the physical world interacts at, at kind of like the quantum level. We see it in like the writings of a, of, of a pretty influential psychologist named Carl Jung, who spoke a lot about the shadow self integrating it into our lives. So there's all these streams that have brought this worldview together, and it's not just a Christian thought, it's within lots of different uh, world religions, but it's this integrated idea. So it's no longer like heaven is up there, earth is down here, or, and they're related somehow, but it's this integrated, like almost think of like a spiral intertwining. Like that the spiritual realm and the physical realm are integrated together. There's an inner and an outer experience. And heaven and earth are seen as this inner and outer intermingling together, right? And so this integral worldview affirms that spirit, what we call divinity, God, is at the core of every created thing, right? And we talk about that in terms of where Paul would have said, in him we live and move and have our being, right? So the spatial kind of metaphor for this worldview is not up, but within, right? We look within culture, we look within the world, we look in ourselves, and we see and we understand God at work, right? Now, it's not, it's important to draw this distinction, this integrated worldview of spirit and world, right, or spirit and matter, whatever it might be. It's not pantheism. It's not that God is everything, right? It's been called what's called panentheism, which means God is in everything. The word pan means everything, and means in, theos means God. So, panentheism is God in everything, and we see and can experience God all around us in everything. Now, a fresh perspective in general is like founded and, and thinks through and looks at this worldview and says, okay, that makes sense to us. Now, go back to think about the ancient worldview that, where we started, right? And say, okay, this is the biblical writer's worldview. Now, think about the worldview we're living in. There's a, quite a difference there. And what's fascinating is our worldview is that thing that determines what we're allowed to believe about our experiences, so what you hold about the world, how you think about spirit and matter and God interacting, it kind of frees us and allows us to believe certain things. And here's the reality. Most of us have kind of chunks of all these worldviews living inside of us. Are you bored to death yet, right? Most of us, most of us have, these, have like bits and pieces of these different worldviews because they've just been a part of different traditions that intersect with our lives, right? So Walter Rink writes in his book, like, here's the deal, like, we may be the first generation in the history of the world that can make a conscious choice between these worldviews. Like, our generation can actually look and see and discover these different ways of thinking, and he says, we can, de we can decide which worldview best describes the world as we encounter it, and whether we still want to be controlled by the others. Now, that's a pretty big deal, that kind of cognitive awareness that says, I actually get to say, given the way I experience the world, what makes the most sense? I've got all these different worldview options kind of around me. And that was not available to any other generation. Now, here's the thing. So that's for us is great. <laughs> but we're, we're again looking at people who are asking the why question from an ant a, a worldview in antiquity. 
And in antiquity, their worldview didn't determine what they wanted to or what they were allowed to believe. It determined what you were capable of believing about the world and how God works. It wasn't a matter of, oh, I'm so enlightened, like I can think about God differently than this group of people. Like everybody in antiquity, nobody could have imagined the gods without sacrifice. Like it just, you couldn't do it. It didn't matter what religion you were a part of. If you were in the Mesopotamian region, like there was sacrifice and there was gods and you kept them happy and they were tribal gods. It was just, you couldn't think any other way, right? And so it's important that as we launch into talking about something as big and weighty as sin and the cross, that I give you this beautiful, boring foundation for thought. (laughs) And that is that the earliest followers were doing exactly what we would do. They were meaning making. They were meaning-making, and they were limited, far more limited than we are, by the matrix of their culture and their worldview. So they're asking these big questions of why the cross, why did Jesus die? And they're reading their lives, they're reading their experiences, they're reading their texts from that point of view, and it was the only way they were capable of. So their worldview processes, how do I make sense of this? Their religious practices right? Judaism, ancient Judaism, grounded and founded in in this idea of different layers within the temple and sacrifice. You couldn't think about, it wasn't that you didn't want to, you just weren't able to. Like the the way thought evolution happens, right, is you can only think so far ahead of current norms. Does that make sense? Like I can only maybe if I'm a really innovative, like on the scale of innovation, if you're all familiar with that, like I can only think so far innovatively into the future because I have to have certain foundational things that build up to, right? I can't imagine going to the moon if I've never flown in an airplane, right? Like there's that, there's that progression. I can't, I can't imagine going to Mars until I've discovered Mars. Oh, Mars is out there. Maybe we should go there. But until I know that, right? So there's a progression Like, we couldn't imagine curing cancer until we know that cancer exists, right? Until we have this way of, this marker of identifying it. So we're always limited in our innovation and in the way in which we solve problems, even the why questions. So they're forced to answer this question, why did Jesus die within their limitations, the way in which the gods worked, the way in which religion worked, and the way in which the world worked, right? Now, here's the thing. A fresh perspective, when we think about sin and cross, what we call atonement theories, takes very seriously, very seriously, like those theories from antiquity, but does not feel at any way, shape, or form obligated to take them literally. Why? Well, that's what the last 10 minutes was about, (laughs) right? So I take them very seriously because they were about meaning-making, and they were important questions, and they still remain important questions, but I'm not obligated to take them literally because of the limitations that we all have and we always have. They're theories, these atonement theories, right? They're explanations for events that are always limited by our context and our worldviews. And they're atonement theories because they deal with this branch of what is the cross all about? Why do we feel separated from God? And how does the cross interact with, with, with bridging that gap that we seem to experience? And so all of these theories that come out of antiquity, and in fact, all the theories that come out of today around this, they're, they're all grounded in our limitations. But here's what I think they all point to. I think they all point to the deep truth, and we sang about it today, or we heard them sing about it today, and we'll sing about it in the future as you get to know that song, that nothing can separate us from God. 
So no matter what the metaphor is, no matter what the explanation is, they're all pointing to in different ways through different cultural realities that nothing can separate us from God. And in fact, right there in the New Testament, in the earliest writings, we have about five different atonement theories. Their roots are right there. Five. Most of us think there's one. Most of us were raised that this is what the cross means, and we just think that's it. But right there within the page of the New Testament, I mean, some Paul like holds two or three of these, no problems, right? We're trying to make sense of it all. So there's what's called the rejection vindication explanation, that the world rejected God, and God vindicated, right, Jesus through the resurrection. And this was about showing God's way of interacting with the world and what God cared about. Then there's the defeat of the powers. There's texts within the New Testament that talk about through the cross, the principalities and powers of this world were defeated. And then there's the revelation of the way theory, right? That Jesus, the cross, is a physical embodiment, a revelation of the way in which we encounter God, the way to live a fruitful life. And then, of course, there's the revelation of God's love theory. And this theory is kind of grounded in thinking about Jesus more than just a historical figure, but as a divine Son of God sent into the world for us and for our salvation. It's grounded in like John's, uh, John 3.16, which is John's commentary on the life of Jesus, for God so loved the world, right? It's a fan favorite at football games. We hold the sign up, right? That's the revelation of God's love. The cross is a revelation of God's love. But really, the one that we all know about, that many of us know about, the one that has seemingly, for whatever reason, taken hold and has become so intertwined with what it means to be Christian is the died for our sins or sacrifice language, like explanation, right? And there are the ingredients for this in the New Testament. There are texts that we can find that talk about Jesus as a sacrifice, hands down. They're there. But this idea isn't fully developed. The idea that Jesus died for our sins as a sacrifice, and, and I'll introduce the word substitute for us, that's really not introduced for another like thousand years in church history. But we wouldn't know that, right? Because we weren't around then. And most of you don't have the time in your day to study church history, right? Like, nor do you want to, okay? But this idea is grounded in an understanding of God of sin and guilt and punishment framework, right? There's sin, there's guilt, there's punishment. And it's grounded in the sacrificial nature of religion, that there was always a need for sacrifice. But it's not really developed fully until a guy named Anselm comes along in about uh, in the 11th century, and he writes this little book called Why Did God Become Human? It's not really a little book. <laughs> and in this, he kind of lays out a theory around the cross, which is based on his own cultural matrix, right? of the relationship between a feudal lord who owns land and servants who are caring for this land of his. And so his understanding is this. If servants don't obey the master, if they transgress, if they don't take care of land, if they don't listen to the feudal lord, and the lord does nothing, the feudal lord does nothing, chaos is going to reign. Now, he's the Canterbury, he's the bishop of Canterbury in England, right? And he's looking at this whole thing through that lens, and he's saying, okay, we have a problem right? If these servants don't obey and you just go off and willy-nilly forgive, there's going to be chaos everywhere. And so if the, if the servants transgress the laws of the feudal Lord and they don't do anything, what are we going to do? No, the servants have to be punished as an example to make sure everybody stays in line. That's his matrix. And this became his view of God. 
And so that he fully develops this theory, and it goes something like this. Tell me if this sounds familiar to you. Everybody has sinned, everybody in the world, and sin is a moral failure of some sort. We've all sinned, and sins can only be forgiven with an adequate sacrifice. And here's the deal. Animals aren't good enough, nor are human sacrifices, because that human would just simply be dying for their own sins. So what God needs is a perfect sacrifice to punish for all the sins of the world so that it's possible for us to be right with God only if you believe that Jesus died for your sins. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Brought a lot of hope to a lot of people. Not down in that theory, not at all. It's it's an important theory. I just want us to recognize where it comes from. This theory and understanding of substitution and sacrifice was not the dominant theory for the first 1,100 years of Christianity. For the first 1,100 years of Christianity, the sacrifice language, you know what the dominant, like, accepted reality was? The sacrifice wasn't made for God. The price, we sang a song today that used the word ransom in it. That's a New Testament word. The ransom that was paid, right, this imagery for a slave being bought out of slavery, the ransom that was paid, you know who the ransom was paid to for the first 1,100 years? The devil, Everybody thought, well, the ransom was paid to the devil. Now, that has its own issues, right? Because it kind of says, well, God's kind of weak. The devil's pretty strong. <laughs> Got to pay the principality of this world so I can free these people from the bondage. But here's the beauty of it. It just gave everybody somebody to blame for the death of Jesus. Well, we can't blame God. That didn't make any sense. We've got to blame the devil. Now, there's problems with this sacrificial substitute language when we take it too literally. Number one, it limits God's power to forgiveness right? God is not freely capable of forgiving. The death of Jesus is now necessary. It's not just a consequence of his values, a consequence of his life, but it becomes necessary, the whole purpose of it. You really only need the last three days of Jesus's life, maybe only the last three hours of Jesus's life. Like his whole teaching, it's not important, right? The idea of salvation becomes this like one-time transactional affair, instead of an ongoing transformational movement in our lives, a lesson for the human soul for all of history, and we'll talk more about that next week when we jump into this word salvation. And it basically introduces a requirement into the center of our life with God, namely that I have to believe this one theory about Jesus. And and that one theory produces a pretty punitive, violent image of God. And here's what I think gets to the real problem. It's not the metaphor. It's not the analogy. It's a beautiful analogy for a time. It's very powerful. But what happens is it turns us into people who just thank Jesus instead of imitating Jesus. We gather in our buildings and we sing our songs and we're so thankful that Jesus has saved us from this punishment that we all deserve that we would be in hell if it wasn't for Jesus. And so now I just, I just want to thank, i just so thankful, I'm just thankful. And we sing our songs, we raise our hands, and there's nothing wrong with being thankful. But what happens is it eclipses the whole message. It eclipses the invitation to follow. And so given that this theory had, has become so widely accepted, what's happened is it's impossible to imagine Christianity or the cross in any other way. I mean, we've had 900 years of, like, what happens when we leave the Catholic Church as Protestants, right? The, the, the Catholic Church splits with the Eastern Orthodox Church, and then there's another split, and then there's another split, and now we've split all over the place. 
and we've just held on to this, and now we can't think of Christianity any other way. And to question this becomes so destabilizing because it's all we've ever understood or thought about. But yet what's fascinating is throughout Christian history, there have always been people who've said, that's crazy. That's crazy to hold that literally. The Franciscans are probably the most prominent group that from the beginning were like, uh, no. No, I nope that. I mean, they were playing, you know, Exploding Unicorns or whatever that game is with the nope card. Like, they were playing that thousand years ago. They were like, nope, no, no way. No way does God need to be bought off or paid in order to love God's own creation. No way. Love can't be bought. If love is bought, it's not transformational. I mean, you could just apply this to your own relationship. Like, we always, I mean, I would try to explain this to people, like, let's just imagine that you started dating somebody, and after a first or second date, you were like, here's the deal. I love you more than you could ever imagine, and I have unlimited resources, and if you will marry me, I will take care of you. I will love you. I will make sure you are never in want. I will make you number one. I will make you whole and complete in every way imaginable, but here's the deal. If you don't, I will make your life a living hell. I will make sure that you, because I am so good, for you to be so dumb to reject me, I just can't deal with that. And so I am just going to punish you as much as I can. Like, we know that's not love. We get it. But we've been ingrained, indoctrinated with this idea that this is the only way to think about it. So this penal substitutionary atonement theory is what it's called. It has a complex history and is dangerous. And, and it's a theory of the cross and sin. It's a theory, Right? And it's been the end of many people's faith because as they experienced love, they go, wait a second, something doesn't add up here. But remember, we're coming from a totally different worldview. I'm not down on the theory or the idea or the language of that. I think it has its place and meaning, and I could sit and talk about why it was a beautiful theory and why we see the roots of it in Paul. But I can also say there's a big problem, and so many people just repress their doubts about it because they think if I question this theory of the cross, I'm actually losing all of my faith. And other people just quietly walk away from religion because it's kind of become irrational and they don't have a way to talk through it. It's become highly mythological. It's unsatisfying to the heart and soul. And for all those reasons, we desperately need an alternative view. It's not to say we need to abandon this language of sacrifice and we can talk about it, but we desperately need an alternative view that fits our worldview, the language of our worldview, so we can recognize the power and the beauty and the necessity in some ways of the image of the cross. And we can do better. I really do believe this. And it in, in no way diminishes Jesus. Not at all. Okay, that was the intro. <laughs> Should we close it out and like make it a two-parter? Like, what do you say here? Okay. <laughs> That's just a lot to say why we have to have this conversation. And I, I always want to hold that that metaphor of substitutionary atonement, like, it, it has changed and transformed a lot of people's lives, and a lot of people still hold to that in a beautiful way, but a lot of people are finding it less than appealing. And so what do we need? We need a fresh perspective. Some of us do. So here we go. Hang on to your seats. First thing, to get a fresh perspective on the cross, we need a fresh perspective on sin, okay? So a fresh perspective sees sin and understands sin as the persistent spiritual reality that fully manifests in its most vile form 
in the continual escalation of human violence and injustice. How about that? Okay? So what I'm saying here is sin, the singular sin, when we read it, let's develop a framework for reading the Scripture. When we see sin in the singular, we immediately think escalatory violence. We think the spiritual reality, the mentality, the thought process, the underlying motivation that at the end of the day, in its worst form ever, produces escalatory violence and injustice in our world. Now, here's why I think this is a reasonable way to think about sin. How many of y'all ever heard the story of Cain and Abel? Cain and Abel, one of the founding, I'm going to use this word and I don't mean it in an offensive way, but one of the founding myths within Judaism about the creation of the world and what's wrong with the world and what went wrong. And this story comes and speaks to us from about, from our time perspective, about 4,000 years ago, which is when the majority of people in antiquity thought the world was created. Now, why is that? Why did everybody, the Sumerians, the Jews, why did everybody think, 4,000 years ago, this is when the world was created. Science tells us something a little different these days. But what was happening 4,000 years ago? Well, what was happening 4,000 years ago was something called the Neolithic Revolution, which was what? Was when we invented irrigation farming. That's what happened. So 4,000 years ago, people began to settle down and stay in one place. Why? Because we invented irrigated farming. And if you're in the Mediterranean basin, the floodwaters would come, and now all of a sudden you go, oh, wait a second. We can irrigate the land. Put our, I'm not a farmer, so just bear with me on this. We can, we can irrigate the land appropriately. So when the floodwaters come, we basically domesticate that flood. And now we can do what? Domesticate seed. We can grow. We don't have to travel around. And so in domesticating seed, we domesticate animals. We don't have to then travel around with them and move everywhere. And then people are gathering in one space. And you have what's happening. The farmer is winning over the herder in culture. Farming is taking over. So the story of Cain and Abel 4,000 years ago is a story about how farming has begun to take over herding. And if you look at the story, Cain is the farmer. Abel is the herder. The sacrifice that's accepted by God is the farm, or is the herd, excuse me, and Cain sacrifice. So there's a tension that's taking place, right? And that's the point of the story. Now, what happens? Cain and Abel, they come, they bring their sacrifice. God says, hey, nice job, Abel. Appreciate it. Cain, eh, I'm going to give you a C minus. Let's think this one through, buddy. And this ticks Cain off. And so Cain goes off and he starts stewing. Y'all ever done that? Y'all ever just stewed? <laughs> Somebody got a nice review at work and you were like, here's some, you had more areas of improvement than not, you know, and they're celebrating you're just stewing, right? So they're stewing and Cain succumbs to the stewing and he kills Abel. And then Cain gets marked by God. He goes off. And then what happens next? Cain builds the first city. That's the story in Genesis 4. And this is the story where the word sin is first talked about in the Bible. Genesis chapter 4. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why are you dejected? Isn't that interesting? If you act rightly, you'll be accepted. But if not, sin lies in wait at the door. Its urge is for you, yet you can rule over it. So sin, the first time it's ever mentioned right? We're, we're right in the process. There's this, is it going to be hurting and farming? And farming is taking over. Sin is mentioned. Sin's not an action. Sin is not the bad sacrifice. What is sin? It's an attitude or spirit. It's an attitude of justification. Abel, you're sitting there thinking you're better. 
You're sitting there thinking that Cain, does, or Cain, you're sitting there thinking that you're better. You're sitting there figuring out, how do I just take him out? Instead of transforming myself, right? Instead of looking inward and saying, okay, what do I need to do? How do I need to be transformed? You're thinking, let me just get rid of the problem. Sin is controllable, right? The text says you can control it. But what happens in the story of Genesis 4 is violence escalates. So in Genesis 4.15, we find what? Well, here's the deal. Cain kills Abel, right? Farmer kills herder. And now what happens in Genesis 4.15, we have this strange thing that God says to Cain. He says, well, if anyone kills Cain, Cain will be avenged seven times. Oh, <laughs> that doesn't sound like Jesus. Hold on one second. So, so the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one would kill him at sight. Now, when I read this, I go, not Jesus, not Jesus, not Jesus, not Jesus. Something else is going on here. Jesus would never walk around going, well, you know, you did this to this person, so you can get him back seven times as much, right? Because Jesus would say, no, you got to forgive him 70 times seven, right? So there's something going on here. And if we do a quick, careless reading of Scripture, which we're prone to do at times, God seems to be threatening this, like, perpetual violence. But what's actually happening here is a description of a desert feud between tribes that have been going on for years and years and years. And the tribe of Cain is saying, listen, here's the deal. If you come after us and you kill one of our tribal members, we will exact seven times revenge on you. And then what happens? If you continue reading the story, by the end of Genesis chapter 4, one of Cain's relatives, a guy named Lamech, who has multiple wives, as we're prone to see in, in the Bible, which is why I have a huge problem when people say, I want a biblical marriage. I'm like, no, you don't. <laughs> Let's never say that phrase again. I want a Jesus-centered marriage, right? That's what I want, desperately. So Lamech, he says, at the end of Genesis chapter 4, look at what he says here. He says, I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for bruising me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. In the span of five generations, we have this progression. Abel hurts Cain's feelings. Cain kills Abel. God acts nonviolently. He steps in and says, no, 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 no. Cain develops a tradition to avenge with violence, and now it's one to seven. And then by Lamech, it's one to 77. See, Genesis 4 is a story of sin as escalatory violence. And that is the story of humanity. We have never created a weapon that doesn't do more harm than the last weapon. And we've never not used a weapon we've created. One scholar talks about the worst day, the worst day of Roman violence was never a threat to the entire Mediterranean world, right? The sun would go down and you just had to stop. He said this, I love it. He said, no Roman sword would cut down an olive tree. There wouldn't be much left of the sword. He says, like, but here's the deal. We have escalated our violence. We have become more and more invented, inventive with our weapons and with our violence. And so the question becomes, can humanity survive without some breaking of this escalatory violence? And so within this framework, within this groundwork, there's a big idea of sin singular. And we can get into a conversation, there are other sins than violence, but my point is, it's the motivation that ultimately leads to a, a, a reality that says, why don't we drop an atomic bomb on people? It's that mentality that escalates and leads to it that's behind everything. All the little stuff that we want to really get caught up in. And so within this framework, sin is about violence 
And now how do we think and ask the question, Jesus died for our sins? Like now what do we say? So remember, Jesus, the historical Jesus, lived a nonviolent life of resistance to evil, a nonviolent life of resistance to injustice. He modeled the nonviolent divine response to Cain. And what was the result? He was executed on a Roman cross. And in that execution, he never became violent. In his arrest, in his trial, in his crucifixion, as the story is told to us in the Gospels, the story is quite clear that Jesus stops any attempt of violent resistance. In Luke 22, he's in the garden. He's getting arrested. Peter, God bless him. We're all Peter. What does he do? Picks up a sword, chops off Malchus's ear. And what does Jesus say? Stop. No more of this. It's right there. It's a beautiful metaphor. No more of this. And he touched the servant's ear and he healed him. And then Jesus said to the chief priests and the temple guards and the elders, have you come out against me to arrest me like I'm a robber? You've come with swords and clubs. Day after day I was with you in the temple area and you didn't seize me. But this is your hour, the time for the power of darkness. So what is darkness? It's violence. Violence is the power of darkness, and its time had come. Jesus was saying, this is the culmination of it right here in this moment. That's the beauty of the story that John's giving us. And so a fresh perspective says this, the cross is the big flashlight, the big spotlight that illuminated the darkness of violence. In John chapter 12, Jesus is teaching, and he says, now the time has come for the judgment on this world. Now the ruler of this world will be driven out. Now remember, the framework is violence, and I would say that the ruler of this world is violence. Like, we have our worldview that allows us to make these transitions that would never have necessarily been capable for the earliest followers of Jesus. But think of the ruler as the world, as that sin that is violence, the escalation of violence. And he says, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw everyone to myself, And he said this to indicate what kind of death he would have. And the crowd says to him, well, what are you talking about? We've heard from the law that the Messiah remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man is going to be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? And Jesus says to them this, the light will be among you only a little while. Only a little while. Walk while you have this light so that the darkness may not overcome you. It's similar language. Sin is crouching to overwhelm you, overcome And he says, whoever walks in the dark knows not where they are going. But while you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become children of the light. And when Jesus said he was going to be lifted up, he was talking about this story in in Numbers. Really crazy story where the, the Israelites were bit by venomous snakes that were sent by God. And God tells Moses after he prays for him, okay, just build a pole and put a serpent on the pole that looks like the serpents that bit them, and and they'll look up at it. And he says to Moses, like, make the seraph mounted on a pole, the venomous serpent, and everybody who's been bitten will look on it and recover. And so Moses does it. He makes the bronze serpent, he mounts it on a pole, and whenever the serpent bit someone, the person went and looked at the bronze serpent and recovered. What's the metaphor here? What's the story teaching us? The story's teaching us until we see clearly what's destroying us, we can't heal. Until we look at the venom, until we call it what it is, we'll never be healed. So don't miss this, okay? And I know we've been here a while already. Here it is. A fresh perspective when we talk about sin and the cross asks us to look at the cross in two ways. 
just like the Israelites had to look at this pole that the serpent was on, we look first at the cross of Jesus, the historical reality of the cross. And we look at it until we see the evil of human violence and injustice that's destroying humanity, but our own humanity as well. We have to see what's killing us before we can find healing and salvation. So we gaze at the cross of Jesus, not in any metaphorical way, but in the historical reality of what that cross was. And historically, it was the most vile expression of imperial violence. It was terrorism. In Jesus, it was unjust. It was inhumane. And so we stare at it. And so faith in the cross on one hand means that the cross will always be a faithful representation of the evil and violence and injustice that the domination systems of this world are capable of. And until we see it first for that, we'll just sing our songs about Jesus and we'll go on killing people. We'll just sing our songs about Jesus and we'll go on not giving people health care that they need. It matters. If the cross is simply this cosmic salvation for a divine God that is so temperamental and so egotistical and so small and petty that is concerned about the lie that I told when I was in third grade that now I'm going to burn in hell, we've missed the anguish of the crucified one. And we will sing our songs and we will fill our churches because that's fun and doable. But to really stare at the cross and to recognize what the cross actually represents, that state-sanctioned violence, that the killing of innocent lives, that violence leads to nowhere. We got it so wrong, we killed God. That's the story. But yet we're just so easy. We're just, let's just keep doing it. And in this looking, we do what Father Richard War says. He says, we stare at the cross until we see this. It's not God who's violent. We are. It's not that God demands suffering of humans. We do. It's not that God needed or wanted suffering, neither in Jesus or in us. That's the first way we look at the cross. And we recognize the problem is not God. The problem is us what we will justify in the name of God, in the name of peace. And if we won't look at the cross and get that, we can't move on to the second way of seeing the cross. We have to stay there and see the cross for what it is, a tool of torture and violence, injustice, aggression, terrorism, to scare people. That's what it was. And so we gaze at it and we recognize that's not what God, it's what we do to one another when we don't understand, when we see someone as a threat, when we see their way of being, when we see their way of loving, when we see their way of thinking, their way of worshiping, we become the bearers of the cross. Instead of carrying our own cross, we carry theirs. And we're readily and very quickly to be the Roman soldiers nailing people all over crosses because they don't believe like us, they don't look like us, they don't think like us, they don't love like us, whatever that might be. And so we stare at the cross until that reality sits in. And then we shift our gaze and we look at the cross of Christ, the living presence of God that was manifest fully in the historical Jesus. And we see that only compassion and only forgiveness 
have the power to save. That's it. Only compassion, only forgiveness have the power to save us from evil and violence and injustice. That's the point. That's the good news for the poor. That's the gospel. That's the historical, metaphorical understanding. The cross of Christ, theologically, is the most beautiful expression of compassion, nonviolent, enemy love, and divine behavior we've ever seen in a human being. And that's why John the Baptist says in John chapter 2, when Jesus comes down to get baptized, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away, not the sins plural, but the sin of the world. That's why the power is broken. The singular reality, the power of violence, that underlying way of thinking that says, I get to say who's good and who's evil. It all goes back to the garden. It's the tree of good and evil. It's right there in front of us, and we've missed the beauty of the inspiration of it all coming in. I get to say who's good and evil. I get to say who gets health care. I get to say who gets to be a citizen. I, gets to, I get to determine who should be here. I get to do all this because I know good and evil. It's the prevailing attitude so why did Jesus die on the cross? Well, a fresh perspective emphasizes that Jesus died from our sin <laughs> because violence is the normal way we run our lives. And that Jesus died for our sins to witness to us that violence will destroy us. That, that underlying spirit, why I do what I don't want to do and don't do what I want to do, as Paul would say. And it's important to remember that a fresh perspective honors the language of sacrifice without needing the language of substitution. I think this, I think this idea of substituting, of Jesus as a substitute, is an invention of Anselm. The sacrificial language is there. You couldn't have understood Jesus. It makes perfect sense to me why Paul would interpret and others would interpret Jesus as a sacrifice. No problems. And undoubtedly, Jesus sacrificed himself. He could have chosen a different way. Jesus undoubtedly sacrificed himself, but a fresh perspective isn't bound by the substitution sacrifice language of Anselm that turns God into this punitive, angry being out there. It's a metaphor, and if we understand it in its horse historical context, sacrifice, it's beautiful. And it's all about the temple, and what Jesus and what everybody's saying is the temple had this monopoly on forgiveness. You had to go to the temple. You had to offer the sacrifices, all that stuff. It was a monopoly on God's presence. And I think Jesus learned from his mentor, John the Baptist, whoa, 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 that's a jacked up way of thinking about forgiveness. And so John would call people out to the Jordan and say, come and, and be baptized and repent for the forgiveness of sin. And now all of a sudden, forgiveness is as readily available as water in the Jordan. And Jesus, the natural thing for Jesus would be to continue thinking, right, and go, hey, wait a second. I think, I think he's onto something here, but it doesn't even, you don't even need to go out into the water to get baptized, to get forgiven. So what does Jesus do? You're forgiven, and you're forgiven, and you're forgiven. It's a state of reality. He's just forgiven everybody like Oprah gives cars out. Everybody. And he's breaking the monopoly of religion on forgiveness in the presence of God. It's a beautiful language to say that Jesus was the sacrifice to end our foolishness in thinking we need sacrifice. The beauty of the temple metaphor, the metaphor of the veil being torn, Jesus exposing nothing back there to be. No, it's not how it works. Not how it works. So as we get a hold of this idea that these are all beautiful metaphors, 
All these ways of thinking about the cross have their place, and we can honor them, and we recognize them as theories that they're all pointing to this radical truth that God is the air we breathe. That's how close God is, and the presence of God is available to us, and we are loved, and we live in a state of forgiveness because we are known. All of that happens. Then what happens? The cross becomes what? An invitation to participate in the restoration and healing of the world through this thing we call a cruciform life of dying to self and being raised to new life in Christ every day. And so when I think about sin as violence, as the underlying attitude of violence, I love to go back to this passage from 1 Corinthians where Paul writes, for our sake, he made him to be sin who did not know sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And see, I think that's beautiful, that the one who knew no violence became violence, like took it all so that we might be transformed by that image and become the righteousness of God in Christ. Not the moral righteous, but that we might become the justice of God in Christ in this world, offering hope and healing. And again, it's sin singular. It's that restorative, beautiful work of God. It's not moral perfection. It's the perfect love of God demonstrated for all. So as we get you out of here today, after a very complicated, hard-to-follow, theological talk. The cross is and should always be the central image of our faith. If Jesus is the central person, the cross should be the central image because it doesn't get us off the hook. It puts us on the hook because the cross is a reminder of the capacity that humans have for evil. But here's the beauty of it. In Jesus, the human one, we have the capacity for what human beings can be. get overwhelmed when I get overwhelmed by the reality that I've participated in the injustice and when I get overwhelmed by when I look and see people even in my minuscule transformed life suffering under the dominations and, and the powers of our world I find so much hope in the human Jesus that said there's a way there's a way to take all of it in and return it into this world as love that I can take the hate and I can return it back into the world as love and there are some who've walked this planet who have followed in the steps of Jesus and taken the hate and returned it in love but only in their death and so my desire is to take the hate and take my fears and take my participation in all that is wrong and every day just try to return it back in love. And when I look at the cross, I see the human Jesus that offers that for me. And quite honestly, that's what I want for our church. That's why I think these topics are important because I want to sing, I, I want our song, it's beautiful, we should sing songs 
because those change us and challenge us. But it's not enough. It's not enough. But the cross reminds me that there is a way. And it's a painful way. We live, we live in a space of naivety. This song that Mickey's going to sing for us as we receive the donations today and connect cards. Thank you, by the way, for being here. Thank you for enduring this there is no more powerful image in my world than the cross. There just isn't. But it's not because of this thing that emerged in the 11th century. It's because of the historical reality of it. And I think we ought to hang on to that. And we ought to allow as we grow for it to change us and challenge us and open our eyes to see, see truth. So we'll receive the offering and then we'll give you a blessing, get you out of here just in time for bed.